0: One of the questions you asked earlier was, "How much did you come in knowing, and how much did you learn on the go?" And it was you know we learned everything on the go. And this is one particular instance where you know the first shipment of wallets that we sent to our first Japanese distributor didn't even fit the Japanese yen because the Japanese yen is bigger than the U.S. dollar, right? And so they sent us a picture back of this wallet, and and all the dollar bills were sticking out the top of it. Right? And at the end of the day, we weren't going to take those wallets back. It was a start. It was a really sloppy start to that relationship, and it didn't really work out in the long term. But we learned, right? We understood that, okay, you know what? There's there's going to be differences in that market, not just in the size of the wallets, but how they use them. And so that was sort of the, you know, that was the springboard for us to be like, okay, well, maybe we need to put zipper pouches in our wallets because they still use coins, which we didn't even think about. We never t- took a step back and said, okay, great, we got a Japanese distributor. They want some wallets. Let's send them the wallets that we had. We never took a step back and really analyzed How are they going to be using the wallets? What's different about it? And that was a lesson to us to really kind of, you need to sometimes take a step back and look at things holistically. Otherwise, you're going to end up with egg on your face.
1: Hey everyone, I'm Palmer Higgins, and welcome to the Big Time Small Business Podcast. I interview owners, operators, and founders of the small businesses you see every day but don't hear enough about. We talk about the obstacles they have faced, the successes they have earned, and where their business is going to inspire and inform you in your own career. On this episode, I speak with James Morin, co-owner and COO of FlowFold, an outdoor company that makes minimalist gear for everyday adventures. James admits to initially selling wallets for beer money for almost five years while he and his partners prototyped their designs and raised some seed money before going full-time three years ago. Since that time, they've been near doubling sales annually, thanks in part to collaborations with companies like L.L. Bean and entering international markets as far away as Japan. Now with revenues in the low seven figures, James and his co-owners have their sights set on hitting $10 million in the next five years. All right, James Morin, co-founder of FlowFold, thanks a lot for being on the Big Time Small Business. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, uh, really looking forward to this. Uh, I first heard you speak at a uh, at a conference here locally in Portland, uh, talking about transformational growth. Uh, and I thought you gave an excellent talk, uh, really well structured, really well articulated. Uh, so I'm probably gonna make you repeat some of that stuff on air here, because I thought it was really good stuff. Um, but first, for those that don't know FlowFold, they probably aren't local. And they're probably not big Bean fans, because uh, if they were either of those, they probably would have heard heard of you guys. Uh, but for those that haven't, can you give the brief synopsis of Flowfold?
0: Uh, sure. So Flowfold is an outdoor company, which is why we work with uh, Lo Bean exclusively. Well, they're one of our larger partners, you know, locally, but also in the United States. And we make what we call minimalist gear for everyday adventures. So bags, packs, totes, duffels sort of gear that our customers can use every single day whether they're in the city streets or on mountain peaks as as a little saying is but it's uh, it's it, that's life for us sure so uh you guys are what I would classifies as a startup uh you guys have been around for how many years well technically the company was founded when we were in college in 2010 when we graduated but like a lot of entrepreneurial stories it was sort of a, a hobby for uh about oh, five years until we were able to raise a little bit of money in uh, the the latter part of two thousand and fifteen. so we're going on three years since we were able to raise money and that's sort of been the precipice to allow us to go full- time and to really start what we'd call like our s curve growth sure so i want to I want to talk about those
1: two worlds, right the hobby sort of on the side world uh, there's a quip uh, on a couple articles written about you about you guys selling wallets for beer money in that time frame to Um, Some big collaborations with some pretty big partners, getting a lot of notoriety. And then what you're talking about, the S-curve growth, both locally and and internationally. So let's first start um, in the early days when it was sort of more informal. uh, And uh, before you guys raised money, what was the dawn of FullFold and what kept you in it for four or five years as sort of as a hobby?
0: Well, I mean, the cliche answer is passion. I mean, like in the beginning, you need to really believe in what you're doing and enjoy what you're doing if you're not doing it for significant money, or even in some cases, any money, right? your money. <laughs> um, I would say that it's interesting because I look back now, and maybe this is not the answer to the question that you're hoping for, but I, I look back now and I, I don't know if if I was graduating now in 2018, if, if I could take the same route. If you, if Flowfold could take the same route that we did back then, because in 2010, Amazon was the wild West. I mean, Shopify really didn't necessarily exist as well as it does now. And so in many ways you could effectively grow slow. You could make 10 wallets at a time and sell them and build up some reviews and get some user generated content. And you could create a sustainable business model without having the worry of feeling like you're not catching up with your competitors or you're going to become irrelevant now, with companies raising VC money just to get a prototype out, I don't know if you can grow slow anymore. I don't know if you can do the route that we did, which was have five years of of testing and prototyping and make income on the side and, and then raise money and, and go full bore. Um, like, that was our method back then. I don't know if we could do it again. But that's how we did it in, in back in 2010. Yeah,
1: no, that's that's, that's super interesting. So I want to I want to stay on that topic. Um, so do you say, you, you're thinking now it's so hard to break through, there's so many other direct-to-consumer e-commerce dominant, not necessarily solely e-commerce companies out there, that to build your brand as a nascent brand would be near impossible?
0: I think it's different. I I think when we started with Amazon, we could reach out to individual customers and ask them for reviews. I mean, you can't do those types of things, right? And so, I mean, one of the best examples that I can think of, it's different, but like pure Vita bracelets. We met them, we met them at the first trade show we ever went to. This company is huge. Now they have over a million followers on every one of their platforms, very big. And they're based out of California. And they, they realized the potential of, of Instagram very early on, you know, that was 10 years ago. They were talking to me about that and they went all in. And as a result, when in the early days, you could post at nine and five every single day, you could post two times a day. You'd get all the followers. The algorithm was simple. You didn't have to pay to play. Um, and they took advantage of that. And so you, you can't do those things anymore unless you find that next thing, which is always, you know, it's it's becoming more and more difficult to do that as Facebook and Instagram and Shopify and these e-commerce platforms build their dominance in the space. So is there is
1: having started earlier and and having been able to build that following, uh, is that something that's sustainable and durable? Or is it something that because the competition is so much more severe now and the platforms that these companies are on, the Amazons, the Instagrams, the Shopify's are, are so much more built out and distinguished or defined. Uh, do you sort of have to keep reinventing yourself all the time to stay ahead?
0: I think now more than ever, it, for me, it comes down to authenticity. And I think I spoke around this in, in transformational growth, actually um, you have to, it's such a competitive space. It's so noisy. And The only way to be able to truly separate yourself as a brand now is to be able to speak an authentic voice and do it consistently. Otherwise, you're going to lose the attention of your desired audience. The the cost of customer acquisition is, is far too high. So you could go out and raise a bunch of money and promote the heck out of yourself. But if you don't have an authentic voice, you're going to end up Getting the customer, but you'll lose them, and that's just way too expensive of a loss. With how much money it costs to get them in the first place. Sure.
1: So I want to talk about both of the things you highlighted there. Uh, authenticity is something that we here at Chenmark talk a ton about uh, in a different context, but you know, in, in our day jobs, we seek out and acquire uh, tenured businesses from small business owners who generally, typically, are seeking retirement. And authenticity is something that I talk a lot about with other people who do things similar to what we do. They say, you know, how do you find how do you find sellers? How do you find deals? Say, listen, you've got to be who you are. And we're, the great, we're a great fit for some sellers, and we're a horrible fit for other sellers. And I tell them that basically from second one. How do you define authenticity at FlowFold?
0: The big thing for us is voice. Like, w- you, There are so many different touch points when we're communicating to our customers. There's obviously social media. There's email. There's point-of-purchase graphics at our retail shops. And it, you have a platform. We, as a brand, have a platform. And we need to be consistent because— With that amount of noise that I'm talking about, there's no way that you're going to get a chance for your customers to remember every single thing about you. They won't be able to because they have too many things to worry about. The average person gets about 300 notifications a day on their phone, so the thought that my ad is going to break through all those notifications and be the one thing that they pay attention to, well, it's it's foolish for me to think that, and it's actually bad business practice. So if I know they're not going to hear everything, I know they're not going to listen to everything, the things that I say always have to be consistent, always have to be on brand and in our authentic voice. That way they don't need to hear all of it and they can feel like they're still part of the brand, still understand what we're doing clearly, concisely, and can feel like they're part of it. Sure. And so what uh, what is that authenticity to you guys? I mean, a great example is user, user-generated content, right? We can promote our brand as much as we as we want. At the end of the day, our audience, which is typically 18 to 35, They've been promoted to more than any other generation in, in 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 the history of mankind. So, in order, they don't care what I have to say. They want to understand what our what our audience, what our core customer base has to say, what our micro influencers have to say about our products. So, using user generated content, finding people that are using our products in the way that we have been inspired for them to be using them, right, and in ways that we hope that they would be using our products, and promoting the the story of Flowfold and sustainability and. um, you know, in the aspects that we believe make the company great. By promoting those types of things with user-generated content, that's been a really big part of what I believe our success has been and and something that we're going to focus on moving forward.
1: Sure. So the other part of what you said was talking about customer acquisition cost um, is definitely a, a, a quantifiable metric, but also there's a, there's a subjective component to it of trying to define who your target customer is that you then want to try and acquire. Um, so you said that uh, you mentioned earlier that, customer acquisition is so high. And is that because your potential consumer base is so large or it's actually the opposite? So specific, but trying to target that exact person and trying to get them over the hump because they're marketed to so much now is that difficult.
0: I mean, for sure, attention is the issue there, and getting their attention is the is the problem, and it costs a lot of money to do so. I mean, an example for us is we have this little uh, minimalist card holder wallet. By a volume basis, it's the best selling wallet that we have. Our our audience they like to be fairly minimal. Uh, they don't want to have sixteen different bags. They want one good bag that they can use to go to yoga, or go to work, or or go on a hike with. And so, with that minimalist wallet, although it's our number one seller by volume, we really it's it only costs we just raised the price to 15 us dollars for that product. So to be able to promote it using Google ads or, or Facebook AdWords, by the time we promote it, get it in front of you and you buy it, we're not making any money. So I, I think, you know, getting attention without, you know, this idea of pay to play and like all, all, all signs are showing that Instagram is going to take over the Facebook al- algorithm. And in order to get high engagement, you're going to have to start paying for space and, and getting it in front of customers. Uh in order to sort of avoid that, you have to figure out other ways of getting attention. One really good like tangible example is if you have a product that you can sell and you're not selling it on Amazon, you're, you're costing yourself money. And it's a poor business practice because Amazon is being used as a search engine. So people don't people go on on Google and maybe search thin wallet but more often than not about 49% of people in fact are going to go to Amazon and search for thin wallet before they go to Google. And so we need to be able to position ourselves on Amazon so that way some, when someone searches thin wallet we pop up. Now it's not so much about having to figure out how to get in front of them on Instagram or other social social platforms where really they're also looking at their aunt's new you know dog or their sister's kid you know like they have all these things BuzzFeed that's taking their attention Amazon they're going to search and buying products and even though we lose a little bit of margin by working with Amazon that has to be a pivotal part of our growth strategy uh, otherwise we're missing out on a huge demographic on how they want to shop sure
1: uh, and so that brings up another point that you you it was the Probably the thesis statement of of your talk at the uh, transformational growth co- uh, conference here in Portland, and that's collaboration. And so I'm going to sort of extend that to you know quasi collaboration with Amazon, uh, but also your your very real collaboration with a company like LL Bean and how it's helped your small company grow by leaps and bounds. So uh, how did you get into that that mind that mind frame uh, that mindset of collaboration, and how have you been able, been able to execute on that?
0: Well, it's a great segue because what we've talked about so far is that cost of customer acquisition is high and attention is is spread pretty thin right so if you look at those two things you you need to be able to solve that problem the best way to solve that problem by getting new customers cheaply and getting their attention is being is being relevant you have to be able to tell a story that they that's different that they want to hear you have to be able to separate yourself and that can come in many different ways, many different forms. Um I think it depends on your business model obviously. It depends on if you're a service or if you're selling a a, a a goods of some sort. But at the end of the day, you need to be a little bit different. You need to be able to tell a story. And I think that What we looked at, what we saw in the space, whether it was the fashion industry or whether it was um, Shopify, I mean uh, Spotify and Uber partnering to make a better customer experience during Uber rides, whatever it was, when two companies came together to create an effective collab, what it did is it created a story, right? Red Bull going up and and um, for the. That guy that went up in the hot air balloon and then had the the record for for the largest fall or whatever like that was it was a story. I mean, it cost Red Bull you know probably millions of dollars, but it was a story that got people talking about their brand. Mm -hmm. And so that's the effectiveness of a collab, which is why we have put a lot of emphasis on on partnering with like minded companies, like minded industries that are going to bring something to the table that maybe we don't have. And allow us to sort of bring something to the table that they don't have to create a really interesting story like the like the L.L. Bean collab. Sure. So
1: how do you preserve your authenticity when you're doing a collab? Obviously, I know there's some there's heavy overlap with L.L. Bean, uh, not least of which the roots in Maine. But when you're talking about authenticity and trying to make sure that your story resonates when you do a collaboration, now you have two companies that are competing to tell their stories Sure, collaboratively, but I'm sure Ella Bean would say they want their story to resonate more, and you guys would say that you want your res- your story to resonate more with that customer who's buying the the Ella Bean Flowfold collaboration backpack.
0: Yeah. Well, the first thing is, you know, we talked about story. Now we're talking about authenticity. We're kind of taking this full circle. The collab is irrelevant. The story is irrelevant if it's not an authentic story, right? And so, uh, you know, for for Flowfold to do a collab with Revlon, a makeup company, might not necessarily make sense. The desired audiences are completely different. Yes, we could probably make a cosmetic bag or, an, or, a, or a makeup bag of some sort, but that's not our wheelhouse. It would feel out of place and our audience would more likely than not be confused. But you look at L.L. L.O. Bean, which is an outdoor company, You know, be an outsider. Like At the end of the day, our starting point, our benchmark, our foundation was already an authentic place. After that, I think it just comes down to communication with the with the with the brand or partner that you're you're doing a collab with, and making sure that you're both on the same page, making sure that you've established goals before you start anything, and make sure that that both parties are aligned on those goals. If you do that, there should be no surprises.
1: Sure. So there's already a, a level of of introspection here and, and thoughtfulness that um, obviously you know speaks speaks to your and your team's ability to execute. Um, a lot of the a lot of the articles about you guys especially in the early days was you know a bunch of 26 year olds selling wallets for beer money now you guys have raised capital you are that at uh, 300% or something like that i think the yellow
0: bean collab is 300% where year over year where you know between 60 and 100% growth year over year over the last 3 years
1: yeah so uh, one of the questions that i talk about a lot um, when you when you hear when i talk to youthful people and we get dumped into that category as well is how much of it did you know going in and how much of it did you just figure out on the fly?
0: Well, I would say, I mean, the percentage that we knew going in was was less than 10%. I mean, you just don't know, like, especially at our age. I mean, I was, I was, I was pre-med. Uh, I was going to be a doctor, which is hilarious to think about now. I'm really happy. I did bad on the MCAT and you know, then I, then my first gig out of college was a pharmaceutical startup and the, and the, the, Really, the alignment between a pharmaceutical startup and FlowFold is there. there is no alignment, right? I mean, there, yes, you learn how to deal with growth, but that pharmaceutical startup raised $60 million VC money, raised a couple hundred thousand for FlowFold. It's very, very different. The growth is different. The return on the multiple is different. All of those things. Your exit strategy is different. Um, you know, Devin is, you know, he, he practiced accounting, but to practice accounting and then to go here and deal with, you know, when are you recognizing revenue on the books for certain collabs, you know, the AR, the the AP, the four months cash on cash return, like these are totally different things that you're not learning in college. And, and Charlie, I mean, Charlie was a, you know, he was a civil engineer study at UMaine and basically what he, what inspired him for the company was this idea of, of, of sustainability and, and doing things in a more practical, better way for the environment. So, I mean, it, it, what it, I would say is going into, the, into the being in, in a small business is that you take what it has inspired you to get there and your hard work and your work ethic, but everything else you have to be flexible and you have to be able to adapt as you're going through it because it's just not an easy process and you're going to have to learn as you go. Sure. So the
1: obvious follow-up to that is uh – knowing what you know now knowing how hard it is to to build a company to grow a company would you do it again
0: yeah i mean I, I there's nothing more fulfilling than than growing a small business i mean that's just the bottom line it is hard and it's it is really quite an interesting juxtaposition because you sit there some days and you're like this is this is challenging this is the hardest thing that you can do and and but the things that make it difficult the things that make it really, really like physically and emotionally challenging are also the same things that make it worthwhile, which is it, which is challenging. I I I don't have kids. And I'm sure anyone that's listening to this podcast would probably say like, James, you don't know what you're talking about, but I can imagine that that's what having a kid is like. I I can imagine when my dad came home to play tennis with me before, you know, before high school practice to warm up at 6 PM after working all day, I'm sure there are times he didn't want to do that. I'm sure he was tired and just wanted to sit on the couch and watch whatever game was on and, and have a beer or something. But you don't, you get out there, you go on the tennis court and you, you help your kid out, right? And I feel like in many ways, that's what running a small business and being an entrepreneur is, is that it is extremely difficult, but there's nothing as fulfilling as seeing your small business grow. It, and I've been, I've been part of some larger corporations, some Fortune 500 companies, and, you can't, and, and it's different, different victories there, but nothing compares. Sure. So uh, I, wanna, I wanna go
1: back to, to the operations side of it. Um, Another title of yours is COO. Um, so, what does a day in in James Moore's life look like at Flowfold right now?
0: It's really interesting. You know, for 2019, our goal uh, it's the year of foundation for us. We need to make sure that as we grow, when you're when you're a 200 to 500 thousand dollar company in our space, like it's fairly it's easier, it's fairly straightforward. It, your mistakes are less costly. Your wins are less costly in many ways, right? If you have a big... You can sell yourself out of business. That's what people say all the time about going on to Shark Tank and those types of things. What we have to do now... Because why? Because what ends up happening is you can get a big customer that has... 60 day terms, that give you huge lead time. And now all of a sudden you're, 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 com- you're completely drained of cash. You have no other time to make any other products make any other revenue. And then all of a sudden they don't pay on time. And then you either have to go raise money to pay, pay pay paychecks or you have to default. I mean, you can literally sell yourself out of business, even though there's nothing wrong with your books. Right. And so I think for us, 2019 is the, is the year of foundation because we need to, we just moved into our new headquarters, you know, we spent some, Set almost three quarters of a million dollars to make this place our home for the next 10 years we have to make sure that we set up systems and processes so that way we can train faster we can handle turnover faster if there is turnover and that we can grow at a sustainable rate because you get to that point in your growth where you can no longer just fly by the seat of your pants anymore and if you do you risk you, you risk the serious risk is not losing money. The serious risk is now you have employees that count on you for mortgages and for health care, and um, they have kids and groceries. Like those, so you, you, Dev and Charlie and I just can't be like, oh, let's just try this and hope it works. It's we have a, res- a bigger responsibility now that our company is growing and we're we're hiring.
1: Yeah, uh, I absolutely hear you there. Uh, a lot of people ask uh, myself and and my brother-in-law as the partners of Chenmark, you know, what how, how do you how do you define success at Chenmark, or what do you look at and and there's revenue numbers you know there's profitability numbers there's numbers of companies in our portfolio uh, but when we sit down and we talk about it uh, it's exactly the same thing that you highlight it's the number of people that we employ and by extension number of families that that we're cutting paychecks to a lot of times in a lot of our businesses on a weekly basis and, and for us it's 400 to 450 families and that's meaningful uh, and when you talk about not wanting to make a mistake you know it's one thing if we can just sit here and be like yeah if it you know if we mess up, great. You know, we'll we'll eat the ben. We'll eat the cost of that. But you know, four hundred fifty families can't really do that. Right. And uh, it's but much bigger stakes. So I hear you there. So systems and processes, yeah. something near and dear to our heart. Something that we spend a lot of time helping our our companies uh, fortify. So what are the three things that you guys are focusing on from systems from a systems and processes perspective?
0: Well, the first is for sure documentation. I mean, it has to be documented so that way it can be replicated and taught. So that's that's one thing that we're we're really focusing on is is things that we do every single week, every single day, making sure we document them um and and basically, your your basic standard operating procedures. Mm-hmm. You know, another thing that we're really focusing on is, is that you have to allow some sort of flexibility in even these documents, even these standard operating procedures, you have to allow for feedback. A system or a process or a procedure that doesn't have any feedback is doomed to break at some point or at least become inefficient in itself because, you want to continue, you want to also empower people that are going through the process to to sit there and to question, is this the fastest way to do this? Is this the most efficient way to do that? So the first is making sure that we document our processes. The second is that we empower anyone that's going through them to be able to question um, and to tinker and to, you know, not, it's not necessarily, it's not written in stone. We want we want these processes to continue to be better and improve upon.
1: Sure, do you have an example for me?
0: Well, I mean the ease
1: of a system of process that you're that you're codifying right now.
0: Well, the I mean the, the the easy the fun is the easiest one for like right now is it took us 8 years to be on on a, on the first floor of a building, right? I, like in terms of like mistakes that like an entrepreneur makes and like what I would do differently, 8 years was far too long to be on the second floor or a basement of a building when you ship products in and out of your facility every single day. So even just having a loading dock like we finally have at our new headquarters it makes a huge difference in what the process and the procedure looks like in expediting time, sure
1: all right, so twenty nineteen is the year of systems and processes that's sort of a a long term goal um, on more of a micro level. what does your day look like
0: on a micro level, so I also have to um manage all of our sales channels so for me i'm I'm looking at we have direct to consumer um we have three basic revenue sources, direct-to-consumer, which is our highest margin play. That involves managing our website, managing our social feed. We, I work with, closely with Kat, our, our marketing manager, uh, to make sure we optimize our emails and segmentation and all those things, right? Then, of course, we have our domestic wholesale, which is about 120 shops across the U.S., coast-to-coast. Um, and that's a unique challenges in, in itself. We have sales reps, three of them across the United States, that manage those, those wholesale relationships, But it's providing them with point of purchases, uh, point of purchase graphics, it's providing them with updated line sheets, are there price changes, what are the graphics, how do we leave a silent salesman at all those shops, right? And then the the third source of revenue that I have to manage and maintain um, is international distribution and international growth. So that is a a much different and a much more, it's it's exciting arm of the business, but it's it's completely different than managing the other two channels. Uh, There's time zone challenges, there's there's language barriers. Um, there's all sorts of things, but it you know keeps me on my toes for sure. Sure. So
1: international is something that I want to pick up on because it is a it is a definitely a focus of yours. It's a one of your faster growing segments. It's an area that uh, that that you and and the other founders of Flowfold uh, have commented that you know, could be it could be the fastest growing segment. And it's a and it's a focus of yours going forward could represent a quarter of your business in, in short order. Why the how did you first get into international, and why the focus on it? Because as a, as a small company, very easy to say, "Hey, let's just focus on what we do." There's plenty of opportunity in the U.S. Before you need to go, and for you, international means very international. We're talking Far East, mm-hmm. uh, Korea and Japan primarily, I think. Primarily, yep, yep. So, so why go that far away?
0: Well, in fairness, we didn't look for it. In okay. fairness, you know, we went. We go to domestic wholesale trade shows specifically outdoor retailer, which has historically been in in, uh, parks City, Utah, and now it's in Denver, Colorado. And when we're there, we can't control who comes to our booth. And in the beginning, a couple of uh, distributors in Japan and other markets came to our booth. They saw our products. They thought that it resonated really well with their markets for whatever reason. It could be the poppy colors. It could be the designs. uh, It it could be the fact that it's made in, in, in USA, which Right now, domestically, that doesn't really play all that well. I mean, consumers are willing to spend 10% more for a Made in America product. I can't make a product for 10% more, so it doesn't really— there's no patriotism anymore behind Made in America. There are benefits, and we can get into that later if if you want, but Made in America still plays in Japan. Made in Maine still plays in Japan. The yellow bean boot in Japan still says the Maine duck boot on the back, that little license plate. It doesn't say the, the bean boot like it does here because Maine still plays in Japan. And so they came to us. And when you're not prospecting and someone comes to you, you you're going to listen. And so, of course, we listened and we, made, we figured it out. It's been a learning process. You know, doing business, trying to figure it out uh, domestically is one thing. Trying to figure it out internationally is totally different. And so we relied on some resources. Maine has some great resources with Maine International Trade, c- Trade Center. Um, the Small Business Administration helps significantly with, with businesses like Flowfold trying to increase their exports. So we've been able to rely on some friends and some champions and some mentors to help us get out there. And it's been, it's been good growth. And I'll say the other thing was, there's no mistaking it. A lot of people will say like, isn't it risky shipping overseas? Isn't it, are you worried about them ripping you off and whatnot? At the end of the day, the the world is pretty small. They can go to flowfold.com and order every single one of my products. I'd probably ship it without even knowing, you know, without even picking up on it. They could rip off the design. So that's retail in general. Um, so I'm not worried about that. In fact, it's quite the opposite. What we've found with our international business is that they expect and they understand that they're gonna have to pay for the products before we ship them. We're not gonna go to some international court to try to claim, to claw back any sort of money for a PO that they didn't pay, pay for. They pay in advance. Now, if you really think about that, when you look at Eastern Mountain Sports, we partnered with them for a while. They unfortunately went through two bankruptcies over the over the course of our partnership. They have new management now. You know, we're 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 confident that they're gonna be going in the right direction. But the amount of defaults last year for small businesses, the amount of Chapter 11s in retail, was greater than the recession of 2008. And so when you look at that from our perspective— Wait, say that again. The amount of retail shops that went through Chapter 11 last year in 2007, well 2018, was greater than at the height of the recession in 2008. No way. Now, granted, that doesn't take into fact that some retail shops popped up, right? and, sure. and other re- in But the amount of pure square footage of retail shops like Sports Authority, Sears- uh, pa- so
1: based on square footage.
0: Well, it's based on actually number of defaults in general, but the amount of square footage itself is putting all of this inventory back into the market, which has systemic problems, is driving the cost down because it's going to the TJ Maxx's of the world and Marshall's. But the, at the end of the day- there's a higher risk of us partnering with some domestic wholesale partners that will not pay their bills if they have to go through chapter 11 than us, than us shipping overseas, shortening our cash on cash return, and being able to take that cash and reinvest it back into the business. Sure. So part of it was accidental, and then part of it was just looking at the tea leaves that was in front of us, looking at the markets and figuring out which actually had the least amount of risk. Yeah, so uh, working
1: capital is something that we talk a ton about at Chenmark Um I think it gets talked about far too little, and you don't realize its importance until you have an experience like what you're alluding to of you you sell on credit, you know, or sixty day terms, right? And but you're paying your employees weekly, and you have to pay your suppliers either upfront or on maybe fifteen or thirty day terms, and that shortfall at scale can can put you in a world of hurt. Um, so, can you talk about? um that component of retail and so when you talk about international actually sounds like that might be the best uh from a working capital perspective that might be the best avenue for you to grow as long as you're not taking on huge currency risk um if you're getting paid up front i doubt i doubt beans paying you up front i doubt any u.s customers paying you up front the only other people paying you up front are the direct-to-consumer people right and then you have credit card processing fees
0: correct I mean, you can manage it a couple of different ways. One is by having a strategy. where We're, we're, we're st- strategically focused on direct-to-consumer. We have to be. It's our highest margin business. So we have to make sure that we're continuing to launch new products. It's easier to sell you two products than it is to sell you a product and then your brother a product. So we're focused on that to be able to, you know, if if you're, if our direct-to-consumer business can pay all of our bills, then we're a little bit less worried about the, the wholesale market terms and the international business with low margins because direct-to-consumer theoretically could keep us afloat type deal. Um, Obviously, that's the goal. We want to grow our direct-to-consumer business as fast as we possibly can. Then the other other thing that you mentioned is just figuring out other ways and and diversifying your revenue stream so that way you're not dependent on any one thing. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's what we have in place now, which is just understanding the risk, knowing the risks, Devin is, you know, having a player on your team who this is his, their job, right? Devin is our CEO. And, and and if it wasn't for him, I'd be giving away product for free. I wouldn't care about margins. You know, I, they, we, I would be just giving everything away. He keeps me in check. He makes sure that no, you know, our margin on this is under 30%. Unless it's strategically relevant from a marketing perspective, this doesn't necessarily make sense, right? That's really important. And it's important to have somebody on your team always thinking about Okay, looking ahead and being like, all right, we're we're gonna be, we're gonna end the year profitable, but in June we will be out of money. And those two things can happen. And if you're not looking at it, the worst thing that could possibly happen is you get caught off guard by it because everything's going well, you have all your POs, but sometime in June or July you have you you have one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in accounts receivable, and you are out of money. And it doesn't matter if the the money's going to come in uh, in in August. Because you still have to pay pay the bills, yep. and so keeping an eye on it, uh, we have an, we have fortunately we have um, our investors have given us a, a line of credit available to use as we need it, uh, and then also we have very good relationships with some some local banks in the event that again we get put in a tough spot, and our banks you know and our books are are fine, but it's just a matter of like our accounts receivable versus our accounts payable, and and so having having some backup is always a good thing.
1: Sure. So you talk about. Um, Sort of what I what I'll call the management team with you and your your two co owners of Flowfold. Can you talk about the relationship there and what it's like to to run a company with three co owners? Um, you know, we talk about uh, we talk about this a lot uh, at Chenmark, and a lot of people bring it up with us because the three founders of Chenmark were all related. So there's the family component, but I think it I think it applies to the concept of just having multiple owners, multiple people at sort of the senior management table who say, you know, I have a stake in 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 where this company is going to go and and, and a voice at the table so how has that evolved over time and and how have you guys managed a a company together
0: I think any small business in any any sort of entrepreneurial endeavor the success of that business is going to depend on the success of of the management team in that relationship it's in my opinion, it's one of the things that's not discussed enough about. I mean, you can talk about margin, you can talk about prospecting and sales and your your funnels and everything, but you need to make sure that your 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 management team is aligned on your key initiatives and goals, and that you have good communication. and I really believe that you need to have siloed responsibilities three of me would, would be a horrible business. We'd be running around with ADHD all the time and chicken with chickens, like a head cut off, right? It would be horrible. We wouldn't get anything done It'd be fun. It'd be great culture until we ran out of money. Right? So you, you need, you need that balance. And if, if you look at what, what Devin, Charlie, and I, um, what we do on a, on a day-to-day basis, we're all so incredibly siloed. We have complete trust in one another to, to get, um, to put Flowfold first, to do what's best for the company, uh, and to keep all of us in check, right? And so, I mean, the basics are you need a good operating agreement, but that happens when you first start. So yes, you can skip on an oper- operating agreement. You need to understand, you know, who the distribution of profits and losses go to, all of that stuff. Like that's important because money can sometimes be the thing that really starts to stress put stress on, on, on management teams. So you need to have that all written down. You need to understand, are we all getting paid the same? How how does the payment structure work? But then after that, you need to make sure that there's trust that you, you stay within your lane as much as possible. You know, and, and just this week, I, I sent an email to the team to Devin and Charlie yesterday. I was like, you know, we moved. And we never really took a victory lap. Let's go get a beer this week. Before I go to Tokyo, let's go get a beer after work. Let's leave at five. Let's go to Mass Landing and let's just not talk about work. Let's just because we, you know, we used to be boys. Like we went to college together, and and like you can kind of get in this mode where you know it's CIO, CEO, COO, and um, you, you need to remember you kind of every once in a while need to remind yourself like why, why are we doing this? We're doing this because you know we love the company, we love each other, and and, and let's you know let's let's keep our eye on that. Sure. So you just mentioned
1: you're heading to Tokyo later this week. Um, So you guys have come a long way in the Japanese market. Before we hit the record button, you told me a a pretty funny story about your first product going to Japan and uh, a little bit of a little bit of a hiccup.
0: Well, yeah, you talk about you know the, one of the questions you asked earlier was how much did you come in knowing and how much did you learn on the go and it's you know we learned everything on the go and this is one particular instance where you know the first shipment of wallets that we sent to our first Japanese distributor didn't even fit the Japanese yen because the Japanese yen is bigger than the U.S. dollar, right? And so they sent us a picture back of this wallet and and all the dollar bills were sticking out the top of it right? and at the end of the day we weren't going to take those wallets back. It was a start. It was a really sloppy start to that relationship and it didn't really work out in the long term. But well, we learned, right? We understood that, okay, you know what? There's there's going to be differences in that market, not just in the size of the wallets, but how they use them. And so that was sort of the, you know, that was the springboard for us to be like, okay, well, maybe we need to put zipper pouches in our wallets because they still use coins, which we didn't even think about, you know? And so it's really easy to get myopic. When you're growing the company, it's easy to look and be like, you know, what are the things that I need to do every single day just to make sure this this business continues to stay on its tracks? And it's really hard sometimes to, sometimes you're spending too much time in your business and you're not spending enough time on your business. And that was an example of that. We never t- took a step back and said, okay, great, we got a Japanese distributor. They want some wallets. Let's send them up the wallets that we had. We never took a step back and really analyzed how are they are going to be using the wallets? What's different about it? And that was a lesson to us to really kind of, you need to sometimes take a step back and look at things holistically. Otherwise you're going to end up with egg on your face. Yeah, for sure. So y- you
1: picked up on two things that I want to I want to talk about. Uh, the first is when you talk about being myopic, um, and I'm going to sort of tangentially relate that to, to focus. And when you're talking about a small company growing quick, uh, you can make a case for trying to be more and more focused. So let's do a small amount of things really well. You we talk about going international. Um, while you're still, you still have the same values, you still have the same um, product, more or less, uh, or at least product values to the customer. You're talking about two different markets separated by thousands and thousands of miles, uh, different currencies, (laughs) different uses. Um, So how do you how do you weigh the risk reward of focus as a small, very fast growing startup uh, against the goal of getting broader, which which should drive growth more, but maybe
0: taking your eye off the ball a little bit? It's a great question. And. I think it's two things. I mean, you look at the international market. Yes, we've identified it as a strong, as a strong growth opportunity for us. But I'm not going to go out and start prospecting every single country in the world and spend one hundred and twenty five days of my year in a plane. It, that doesn't make any sense, right? So I think that it becomes it it comes down to two two things for us. When I'm working with Devin on the budget, it's it's never it's at this stage in our game. It's never a matter of is this good money? Is this money spent? Um, well, in this particular situation. any money you spend at our stage is good money spent. I mean, like you, it's really hard to. If, if I wanted to take all my money and spend it on SEO or or Google AdWords or Instagram marketing or in, or Instagram influencers, it would probably more likely than not be an effective use of that money. Really? Yeah. It, so it's because of the fact that we're we're at the rate in which we're growing, unless we're idiots. Right? But I mean, at the end of the day, like we're a pretty smart management team. We could use that money, and I could spend 120 days on the road, and I could probably develop some more some more international players. That would be good for our business. But is there a better use of the money? That's always the question. Not whether or not this money can be used here effectively, but is there a better use for that money? I mean, a really good example for that is Outdoor Retail, the trade show that we used to go to, every single year was two years. There was a summer show and a winter show. Then all of a sudden, they went to three shows. And each show, on average, costs us at around ten to to fifteen thousand dollars to go to. Is it a good idea to go to that show? The answer is unequivocally one hundred percent yes. it is a good use of that ten to fifteen thousand dollars. However, I could probably take three thousand dollars of that money. I could fly to my key accounts quarterly, and then I could spend another twelve to ten to twelve of that thousand dollars, and I could put it all towards. Uh, you know, Google AdWords and SEO and, and, and marketing and, and building out our e platform or or bringing on an e specialist or not go to two trade shows, have extra 20 grand on my plate and pay for half of a production employee. So it's always about where, where the better use of the money is. And so you always have to really factor that in and not just be caught up in, I think it's a really good idea. It's a good use of money. The ROI will be there. Could the ROI be better somewhere else? Have somebody that's challenging you on that. And then I, I think that the second thing is that you have to oddly be more comfortable at making faster decisions. And when you're small, when you when you spend a lot of time to develop a product, that time is extremely valuable because you You just don't have enough time in the day to, to, you know, your team's not big enough. You don't have enough channels. So, but at this point at at our size, we can, we can afford to make some mistakes a little bit faster. So just make the decision faster because the more time you spend trying to think about it, you could be spending that time on, on, on building your business. So that's the other thing. The concept
1: concept of iterating. Yes. Right. So uh, that sort of leads into what I want to talk about next, which is what you said about working in versus on
0: the business and in a company that how many employees you guys have now? We just moved. We have 8 and we're hoping to hire out another 4 employees by the, in you know by the end of this year for sure. Okay.
1: So 8 now, 12 in the future. Still either way you cut it, small. Yeah. So how does someone like yourself as a as a co-owner, as a as a C-level manager uh work in versus on or sorry, work on versus in the business with a team that's such that's so small?
0: I think that right now there's a couple different ways of doing it. You, when you're when you're, when you're in a business, you can either bring everything in house, or you can farm everything out. If you wanted to, I mean, Flowfold could theoretically be run out of a, a garage, and we could pay contract manufacturers to make our products. We could pay a third party fulfillment center to uh, put packaging and ship them out to the to the customers, and basically just do marketing in house, right? So right now, where where. The management team is figuring out what that balance is. What do we want? Because we do work with contract manufacturers. We do have ten ninety nine sales reps, and we do have ten ninety nine designers. All of those things could eventually be brought in house. So for us, it's just analyzing and figuring out. You know, we have to focus on the team that we have. We have to make sure that our team is is running. You know, efficiently um, and also enjoying the process, enjoying coming to work, feeling like they're part of a good culture that they want to be. They, they want to work on. And then after that, you have to empower them to own their positions so that way Devin Charlie and I can can go ahead and think a little bit holistically of what does 2020 look like what does 2021 22 look like because we want to get to the point where we are you know a 20 to 50 million dollar company with you know 100 employees and in order to get there you need to start doing that now you need to lay that foundation now and so you need to you need to trust your employees to be able to make decisions fast. Uh, fail fast, fail cheap. Obviously, is the, the classic you know saying. Um, that's I think that's the priority for us. If we can allow them to make those decisions, we are spending less time making inconsequential decisions potentially. Sure. So,
1: pretty simple question here, but probably harder to answer. Um, what have you learned as a manager of people? And I ask that because. Uh, I look at a lot of businesses in my, in my day job, all kinds of different industries, manufacturing, service, distribution, supply, what name it, whatever. Uh, and, and regardless, everything comes down to people. And especially right now, uh, every person I talk to across the country, across industries, saying people are the hardest people. Good people are the hardest thing to, to find. So how have, how have you, um, or what have you learned about being a manager of people? Um, because you, you've, you've talked a couple of times about how it's so important to empower them to make it and to have them make either fast or ideally good decisions, much easier said than done.
0: Manage, managing people is probably the hardest thing that you can do. Like at the end of the day, it's, it's, you have emotions involved, you have your own emotions involved and you have their emotions involved. And it's, 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 it's incredibly challenging. I think, um, so I'll I will do. I'll do. I'll do an answer in a two-part way. Like one thing that I've learned about the individuals, and the one thing I've learned about myself in the in the course of management. The first is that um, you don't oversimplify it. I think that. You know, people have different love languages and relationships. Everyone needs to be managed differently. So you can't go into uh, any sort of relationship and understand like, okay, what worked with my last marketing manager is going to work with this marketing manager. Or what worked with my last production assistant is going to work with this production assistant. You need to get to know the individual. And the only way to do that is to be able to listen to them. So... I think that that is the primary key. When, from a management perspective, you need to be able to listen to, to your, your employees, understand how they want to be managed, how they want to be talked to. And one thing that seems fairly consistent to me is that people just want to know that they're being recognized for the work that they're doing. If someone's working hard and someone's doing good work, let them know. It's the simplest thing that a manager can do. How you let them know is going to, maybe you pull them aside. Maybe someone needs public recognition in a meeting. Maybe someone just needs an email, but let them know that they're working hard. Let them know that, they're, that, that they're, um, their effort's not going unrecognized. And I think that's going to play huge dividends for for employees these days. And I think... The second thing for me, you know, and what I've learned through management is that I, you know, I personally don't like confrontation. Confrontation is difficult for me, right? Acknowledging someone working, you know, working hard and doing good work is easy. Confrontation is more challenging. I don't like being the bad guy. That's not what I do well. And so I have to kind of get outside of my comfort zone and figure out, you know, how can I have those difficult conversations? Because the difficult conversations also need to happen. You know, we, you need to have those conversations about, I know we have a work from home policy, but you were not online for most of the day, right? And you need to be able to have those confrontations as well, and you need to be able to separate between being that fun manager. You know, you need to have you need to be good cop and bad cop as a manager. And and for me personally, the bad cop is a little bit harder to pull off. Sure. Okay. So I, I want
1: to transition to the future of Flowfold. Um, you guys have lofty ambitions. You've mentioned already that you want to be somewhere in the twenty to fifty million revenue range with a hundred employees at some point down the road at what point is that how do you plan on getting there you know what is what are the next normally i ask the question five to ten years look like but for you guys you're growing so fast and things are changing so fast what are the next two to three years look like
0: well, we just purchased the 7,500-square-foot um, GORM headquarters. And right now we're using 3 th- – we've renovated 3,000 feet of it, and, and we can expand and grow as we need to um, as we depend as, – as we kind of look at our forecast and our budget and we figure out what kind of company do we want to be. Do we, do we want to be more e-commerce focused? Do we want to be a production company? Um, and who we want. who do we want to hire? So I think if you – we were very fortunate. We actually just got a, uh, a grant from Maine Technology Institute and for just shy of $100,000 to build out what we're calling our R&D lab. Um, and I know the, you know the R&D lab podcast listeners can't see me put air quotes there, but it's, you know, it, it's going to be a, a, an area of our business where we're going to continue to innovate. And we have invested heavily, almost a quarter million dollars into this, this lab where we're going to basically take concepts to commercialization faster. That's the benefit. I talked about Made in America and and what the benefit of Made in America is. It's no longer about patriotism anymore. It's about being able to, under one roof, in Gore, Maine, own both design and manufacturing in in that one area. Meaning we can design a product, we can prototype it, we can test it. And then we can commercialize it all under one roof. We don't have to send templates over to Taiwan or Vietnam or China. We don't have to send prototypes back and forth. We don't have to do runs of 5,000 units in order to make it worth our while. We can make 50 fanny packs, put it on the market, and see how it sells without a risk of that trendy bubble popping. So I think, I think for us, what we pitch to MTI and what what we believe is the future of Flowfold is being agile and being fast in our commercialization process that will be the advantage of, of being made in America because we can do it quicker than some of our competitors. So that's the future. Uh, and then part of the grant for do, us- Do you think that's crucial for a retailer now? Yes. Because it's
1: it's so easy to set up Shopify. It's so easy to sell online. Digital advertising, you can segment your customers any which way. So to your point, it's so much more competitive that you need to be- my my perception is at least you need to be just so much more responsive to the customer and to trends, and so having that that iterative 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 time drop, be able to do everything under run roof, and be that responsive seems to me to be
0: almost critical. Well, it used to be in, in retail specifically, companies used to dictate trends. Companies used to tell you what color is popular right now. Companies used to tell you what products are going to be popular in, in you know in 2019 or 2020 or whatever. It is very much the opposite now. The consumer is telling the companies what's what's trending and what's popular. And it, the risk there is if you start chasing that, you could end up with 500 purple bags that nobody wants because purple used to be popular back, you know, six months ago or a year ago. So you have to be, you know, you, you just constantly have to th- have to think about how you're going to be agile um, because otherwise you, you run the risk of having a lot of inventory on hand and, and all those types of things.
1: Sure. Okay. So-
0: being agile
1: is, is a focus for the next couple of years, two, three years. What else?
0: Personalization. So what we've found is what we're seeing in our industry when you talk about collabs or whatever, um, you know, Matt Powell is a, is a leading expert in data collection in the industry. He's actually in Portland and he works for MPD Group. But, you know, he says right now the companies that are successful, he says small is the new big, which is really good for a company like Flowfold because we're, you know, quote unquote, small compared to the Patagonias of the world, the north faces of the world, et cetera. And he says that the companies that are succeeding right now are going to be what he calls PUNY, which is an acronym for Premium, Unique, New, or Youthful. And that is going to have to be where Flowfold plays. And that's going to have to be where Flowfold wins. You look at what companies are doing well right now, specifically in retail, but I'm sure this actually crosses industry lines. My focus is on retail, but the companies that are doing well are either on the bottom of the curve, where it comes to your Amazon Basics, your Dollar Tree, your Marshalls, your TJ Maxx's, your Goodwills are doing well right now. Um, Your very inexpensive products are doing well. And then your premium products are doing very well. If you're somewhere in the middle, that's where you struggle. And so, you know, Flowfold is not going to be where we can't be, we don't want to be, we have no desire to be. Sort of your your Dollar Tree your your base your Amazon Basics product. We're going to have to become a premium. Our, our our quality is premium. Our materials are premium. Our price points are going to have to be premium, and that is going to be have to be where where we win. And we we did a consumer study that showed that our consumers about seventy percent of them would like the opportunity to be able to pick their colors on their on a flow fold bag. And of that seventy percent, another seventy percent would be willing to to pay up to a 30% premium for the bag and wait four to six weeks in a time of two-day free shipping on Amazon Prime. That was extremely interesting. We always expected that the numbers would be fairly high. But what that tells us is that even our niche market, even our market where we barely, we will not reach saturation for some time, um, but even that market wants to be, take a unique product like Flowfold and even make it more unique and what what the sort of the trend in the industry is like is younger demogra- demographic the 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 Gen Zs the younger millennials the term that I like is that they want to be different just like their friends so by giving them an opportunity to support flow fold and maybe they're both supporting flow fold but their bag is different their two bags are different because they were able to personalize them you know it's your nike id it's your yeah all of those things are important and part of the grant that we got from mti will be to establish a way where consumers can go online and completely personalize a product uh, your colors do you want waterproof zippers what color do you want your zipper pulls to be and I think that's going to be a really exciting way to build new brand advocates for us in 2019 and 2020. And how complex is that
1: from a technological perspective? And how complex is that from an operational perspective? Great, and you have the technology front end for them to pick and play and, and make their bag, and they can see it on a screen. Mm-hmm. But then someone in Gorham has to actually go make it and make it well and make it right. And you need all the different parts to do that.
0: Remember how we said we we learn as we go. Mm-hmm. So I'll let you know in six months. <laughs> I, I mean, jokes aside, like we it there. As a startup, you need to be able to make decisions. You need to look at trends. You need to be able to pick a direction. We picked a direction. We want to be able to offer personalization. You just don't dive in head first, right? We've evaluated a bunch of different options, options that could cost as much as Twenty two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, like Nike ID, building a platform and, and a software on your own system that's that you, that's your own that you manage that you maintain. You bring somebody in that can uh, that can code and build it out, um, all the way to your basic apps that cost fifty dollars a month on Shopify and everything in between. So it's it's evaluating which uh, of those paths makes the most sense, where your ROI is going to be the greatest, and what's going to create the best user experience um, and user interface, sure. and so. We did our research. We picked a path. We're going to test and prove out the concept before we go 100% all in on a more expensive platform or software as a solution. But we are going to evaluate that um, and, and then kind of figure out from an operational standpoint, um, does this bottleneck some things? We're we going to have to maintain it. Uh, we're going to have to have inventory c- controls on, uh, on ma- our materials now, not just products. So there'll be some challenges, but we've identified those. Sure. So you've mentioned ROI a few times. So I want to
1: ask... Uh, Because you've also mentioned uh, making decisions quickly in a world of uncertainty. So how do you make decisions on uh, at least an indication of ROI when uncertainty is so high?
0: I think the first thing I always challenge some of our employees is, you know, go out and talk to people who've already done it, Uh, find out what worked for them, what didn't work for them. If you can kind of look a, a bit in the future, look at the crystal ball by talking to someone who's already done or about to do what you're, what you're going through, that's helpful. I think the other thing, and this is really another good anecdote, uh, For us at FlowFold, the management team has gone through, you know, semi-annually, we'll go through and we'll just list out, like, what is FlowFold's DNA? Like, what are we really about? And if you have that list of your DNA, which I would encourage everyone to write it down, this is similar to a mission and vision statement, but what is your DNA? That will help you make decisions faster. An example there is that our team, came, our product development team, came up to to us and said, "You know, we have an opportunity to go down to Sterling Rope. They make they make uh, climbing rope and safety rope. We have an opportunity to recycle that rope and make dog leashes out of it. And we think it's an inter- interesting opportunity. We didn't have any." Dog products. So me in sales, I said, no, absolutely that doesn't make any sense. It's a different buyer. It's a different market. I I don't have the time. We we haven't saturated the outdoor market. I don't have time to go talk to Petco or some other uh, um other, you know, pet retailers. It just it spreads us too thin. I don't think it's a transformational idea. You take a step back, and I was challenged by my team. I said, All right, well, let's pull out our DNA, right? Our DNA is we we recycle materials whenever possible, keep them out of a landfill, right? We make products for everyday adventures. Our customer is 18 and 35 years old. You know, we kept on going down this list, this this idea of everyday adventure and DNA, like checked off everything. And every single time we went through that, we made a check mark on whether or not this recycled climbing rope dog leash would fit you know, does that fit into our DNA? And at the end of the day, it did, right? It was made from recycled material. Uh, 18, 35 year olds aren't having kids. They're having dogs. They go for hikes. They go for walks. They do that with their dogs. Everything made perfect sense. And so I said, all right, this makes perfect sense. All of my objections also made sense. I don't have, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go out and talk to wholesale accounts and, you know, let's just go direct to consumer. Let's see how it plays out. It's become one of our top sellers, because for a number of reasons, talking about user generated content, everybody likes pic- pictures of puppies, right? Sure. And but also it just it resonated with our audience. It was authentic. It was and we knew that because we 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 didn't back and forth and get angry at each other for two and a half, three weeks. We looked at our DNA, we said, this fits. We we came up with this with the sales and launch strategy. We launched it. And ironically now, it's at LL Bean, it's at backcountry.com, it's at you know, it's at some of the biggest outdoor retailers. So it actually is part of the outdoor market, even though I never saw it coming. So it's uh it's if you have if you have that DNA that'll help you make decisions. That's awesome. So I want to wrap up uh, the interview with a couple
1: questions that I ask everybody. And the first one uh, is: Imagine there was this magic pause button in life, uh, where four months you didn't have to deal with the day to day of Flowfold, but you had to allocate that time exclusively to Flowfold. How would you allocate it, and why? So I have four months. I have to allocate. All my time to flowfold. Yeah, but you don't have. You're not tied down to any of the day to day. So oh. customers aren't calling. You don't have to hit any production metrics. Just, everything's paused, but except for you, uh, and you. So you have to allocate your time back to flowfold without being bogged down in any of the day to day stuff. So essentially, you get to work on the business for four
0: months. Nothing else is going on. It's really so. There. Okay. Well, for sure, one thing that I would try to figure out how to do is how. Could I possibly recreate the online buying experience in stores? The biggest challenge I'm having with our retail shops in the U.S. domestically is that the Flowfold backpack next to on a wall next to Osprey, the North Face, uh, JanSport, Herschel. There's nothing there. That's that's a extremely challenging touch point for me to get an individual looking at this wall of backpacks to buy the flow fold backpack now when you go online you can read reviews you can you can see people talk about it, authentically verified purchases about how light it is how uh, easy it is to to wash if it gets dirty how 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 functional it is, and how practical it is all of these things that can help the consumer end up making that purchase that you cannot get in store I'd like to figure out a way to Better that touch point with the customer. I don't know, I and I don't necessarily know what that is yet. the The other thing that I'd really like to work on and figure out is a, a path forward with with ambassadors. Uh, it's a challenging thing, and I, uh, you know, if you come across any other small businesses that are dealing with ambassadors, you know, Facebook Insta- and Instagram are relatively speaking new. In the grand scheme of things, you know, Elobee's been around for over hundred years. Instagram has been around for what, 12? And I don't know what's going to happen next. I do I do not think that the amount of influence that somebody has with 500,000 followers or a million followers. I I I I think that will eventually end. Uh, it, uh, there's the I mentioned ROI a lot. I don't see the ROI of having somebody with half a million followers post unauthentically or in, inorganically about your product. That doesn't make any sense. But there's micro-influencers. You know, ten to fifteen thousand followers, that can have a really big impact on your brand. And if I had four months, I would really want to do a deep dive, and I'd want to understand what you know. What what do I think? Best guess the future of of Instagram influencers are, and how can we how can we better use that platform to sell? Use it as an extension of Shopify. Use it as an extension of our website because it's just changing so fast. You could spend four months just doing research on what the future of Instagram and Facebook is and and probably still have another six months to go before you really had a, had a decent strategy on how to capitalize on that. Got it. All right. Good, good ones right there. Next one, um, similar,
1: more financial, a uh, million dollars drops on your doorstep and you have to reinvest it back
0: into FlowFold, how you're allocating that capital. Right now, a million dollars drops on our doorstep. Well, we'd hire the people. You talk about pe- we would hire we would hire people, and I, more likely than not, I mean, I'd have to I'd have to think about that. But I think I would invest a fair bit of it into the direct to consumer platform, you know. So get you know, get some additional marketing analysts in in house, um, get an e-commerce specialist, and really go all in on developing that that platform uh, because not when only when you hire
1: those people in your mind, what are they doing? So what does an e-commerce specialist do? What does a marketing analyst do?
0: I would, you know, we're we're, we're evaluating for me in sales, it's funnels, right? I need to, I need to make sure that I have my top of funnel filled and my bottom of the funnel being, being nurtured. So that's like, that's sales aspect. That's, that's international markets or that's new wholesale accounts. But for our marketing team, the funnel is much different. Your, your, your funnel is around um, number of email addresses that you have, the number of Instagram followers that you have, number of Facebook followers that you had. So I would, I would work primarily on investing in that team to be thinking top of funnel. How can we get more customers into our, our, our buying pipeline and, I think that would be, uh, you know, email optimization, um, you know, building out more product pages on, on Facebook, getting our inventory up. Um, so there'd be, there'd be a heavy focus on the D to D- C platform and being really able to understand and optimize that, uh, that platform because it is the fastest way to a sound night's sleep because it's the fastest way to sustainable income, sure. right? I don't, I, cause there's no, there are no terms, it's just pay, it's just credit card processing fees, which I'll, I'll happily pay all day long.
1: Sure. Okay, last question, most open ended here, uh, what haven't I asked that I should have?
0: You know, I think one thing that I enjoy talking about, uh, and I don't mention I don't know if I mentioned this during the transformational growth um, thing is is being able to I talked a lot about like how hard it is and the hard work in those types of things. If there is one piece of advice that I would give to other entrepreneurs or or one thing I'd like to change about the small business or entrepreneurial world, that's that's one thing I enjoy talking about, so I'll take this moment and I'll talk about but it. it. I would, if I could change anything, it'd be this this idea uh, of people sensationalizing lack of sleep, right? This idea that you you have to be up sixteen hours a day in order to build a successful company, that um that you need to be you know sleeping in um, a one bedroom apartment with fifteen people, and then during the other four hours that you're not sleeping, you have to be driving an Uber to make money to pay the bills type of deal. It's unsustainable, and I think it's a dangerous practice. I I think what that teaches people and what, you know, some big heads out there like to talk about, you know, the Gary Bees of the world and they made their money. But what I, what I value the most is if you enjoy the, if you enjoy the process, people like Steve jobs and Elon Musk talk about working 16 hours a day because they love what they're doing and no, you don't need to look that hard to find it. Elon Musk in his spare time builds fire launchers, right? The guy loves what he's doing and that's why he's able to put the time in. But I think what it's doing is it's setting a bad precedent that, that, in order to be successful you have to work those hours and it's not sustainable and what it does is it creates an extremely stressed out culture and and creates suicide rates among entrepreneurs that's higher than every other you know look like demographic whether it's age gender race suicide rates among entrepreneurs is extremely high and so that's because people are doing things that they don't enjoy doing they're chasing carrots not realizing they don't even like carrots and unfortunately i'm a firm believer that you never Get rich. You just adjust your line of poverty. So if your goal is money, um, and that's your ultimate like goal of fulfillment, I, I think you're going to end up living a fairly unfulfilled life. And so for me, Flowfold is. I want Flowfold to be successful. I want to have. You know, we want to be fifty to one hundred million people or a hundred million dollars, right? And but I'm enjoying the process. I enjoy tomorrow just as much as I'm gonna enjoy ten years from now. And and so I think, and because of that, I am willing to work crazy hours. And so. um I guess balance is important, and I want, like, I hope people—if anyone's reading this or, or listening to this—rather, it's this idea that you, you're going to see me work hard because I love what I do. And if you don't love what you do, that's the problem. Try to fix that first, versus coming up with the next great thing and, and assuming that working 16 hours um, and then Ubering part-time to pay the bills—that's not going to be the solution. And you're just going to end up hurting yourself in the long run. Yeah, love the journey. Right. Great thing to end on. Well, James, really appreciate being on the show. Thanks. Thank a lot. you.
1: Thanks for listening to another episode of the Big Time Small Business Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review and share the show with a friend. To access show notes and subscribe to our distribution list, be sure to visit us at chenmarkcapital.com slash podcast. That's chenmark, C-H-E-N-M-A-R-K, capital.com slash podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Chen Holdco, chenholdco, HoldCo. Last but not least, we'd love to hear from you, so please drop us a line at podcast at chenmarkcapital.com. Thanks a lot.